Mark chapter 2. I mentioned in the adult Sunday school class that I didn't mention this, but I think those that have been around a while know this. Just from a pastoral standpoint, from a preaching standpoint, not a big fan of the holidays. Um, And particularly the Sunday before. So, you know, from from a preaching calendar standpoint, do you preach a Thanksgiving sermon before the holiday, after the holiday? Maybe after the holiday should be repentance and fasting. <clears throat> so in any event, <clears throat> more along the holiday lines next Sunday, this morning, just continuing on, I wanted to give a little bit of time, probably through the end of the year, perhaps through the end of the year, just talking to us about the subject matter of forgiveness. It, of course, is a very important topic biblically, and therefore it's important to us. And one of the things I want to try and do, and it's not my intention to do it this morning, is is deal with what to many of us the real rub or the real problem in forgiveness is, which is dealing with it emotionally. But... Before we can get to that, we just need to make sure that we are oriented properly um, around the subject when it comes to the Lord. So let's go ahead and stand, please. And Mark chapter 2 will be our passage this morning. And verses 1 through 12. And again, he, and of course the he is Jesus, entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noised that he was in the house, and straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four, And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed. And go thy way into thine house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. And let's pray. Lord God, help us to understand not just intellectually, but in the deepest possible human way, our own need of your forgiveness. And then help us to understand the 
horrors that it took on your part to secure that forgiveness for us. And help us to be appreciative that we have been forgiven and to extend that forgiveness in the direction of others. And Father, by our natures, we are going to approach this subject just like the scribes and the Pharisees in our raw humanity, but we need your instruction, the ministry of your spirit, both to teach us and to enable us. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, very simply, what's going on in the story is that Jesus is arguing for his deity by the way that he is able to overcome the consequences of sin. By putting a forgiven sinner on display, he is making the case for his own deity. A man who has some physical infirmity and his friends are, and the man no doubt, are concerned primarily about his inability to walk. The exact nature of this deformity is kind of unknown to us. We have, you know, the New Testament medical diagnosis. We don't argue with it, but we would probably seek much more information in our modern world incidental to the story. The man has a problem that has not been healed. The man has a very visible and a very physical defect that is an impediment to his life. As we would say, his quality of life. Like many others, he has heard that Jesus has come to town. And like many others, he wants an audience. He is hoping that there is help. And yet the crowds are so large and the press is so thick that it is not possible for this man's friends to get him to Jesus. And so taking the initiative and becoming very creative and inventive, they somehow drag the man up to the roof where they take apart parts of the roof and drop him into the middle. It creates quite a scene scene, and it is designed to create quite a scene, folks. It is designed to arrest our attention. Hey, look at this. You don't see this every day. This is kind of weird. This is the kind of thing that would make the news. This is the kind of thing that would make our news feeds. Man is let down through the roof. What is more impressive, and the text tells us that, is the way Jesus responds and handles this. So that Mark, and Mark is not the only gospel writer to tell us this event, the event has told us to, number one, to to get us interested and to elevate our excitement in what is happening through the physical dimension of the roof being torn apart and the man coming down through the roof. Only to point out to us that that really pales in comparison to what actually happens at the end of the story. And what is happening is that this man's physical disability 
is being reframed as being spiritual in nature. The Lord is using him as an illustration. So that you have in verse number 4, you have the roof being broken up, and we can talk all day long about ancient, you know, the construction techniques of antiquity. That's beside the point. Right? Somehow Jesus has honored us with his personal presence this morning. He is standing in the pulpit. The building is packed, standing room only. People are in the parking lot. People want to get in. Nobody can get in. Somebody gets a chainsaw, cuts a hole in the roof, and drops down a guy who's confined to his wheelchair. All eyes are upon him. And Jesus talks to the man in spiritual terms, verse 5, your sins are forgiven you. Because folks, to God, to Jesus, human sinfulness is the priority. We see in our world, we just, see the, we just live on a daily basis with the regular consequences of sin. There are the things that occupy us. And what the story begins is by telling us about the things that we can see. A man who has the palsy, who's unable to walk. Friends who are willing to let him in. People who are convinced that if they can but put their man in the presence of Jesus Christ, all will be well. Their faith. To which Jesus says, son, a term of endearment, calling a fully grown man a child. Child. Your sins, the most common Bible word for sins, your errors, your transgressions, your misses, are forgiven. They are sent away. And Jesus doesn't get into the theology of that. We will talk later about the theology of that. Where are they sent? Where are our sins sent? But let us not forget, folks, and it is easy to forget in our modern world that we are living in a world that has been cursed by human sin. And there's no escaping the fact the word curse means intention to do harm. That what God has imposed upon humanity from his sovereign power And his sovereign purposes is suffering in the world. Unto the woman he said, Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth thy children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. You caused this, I think is the implication. Not I'm doing it for your benefit. You brought this about. You brought the curse. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread 
till thou hast returned unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. It is a suffering world because it is a sinful world. And there will be no relief from the suffering until the Lord brings that relief. Until the restoration of all things, until the reversal of the curse, until the new heaven and the new earth. And that kind of forgiveness, folks, is found only in the Lord. Our human governments spend a lot of time addressing the fact that we live in a sinful world. The world, the word that we use now is broken. It's not a bad word, but it's not really the most accurate word. We live in a sin-cursed world. And by the way, folks, I mean, right to me, this is just my subjective viewpoint. One of the clearest evidences of this is our food supply. In much of the history of the human world and in many parts of the world, there was just a shortage of food and people lived constantly in danger of famine and starvation. And food sources were unsafe and unsanitary. And in our world, food is plentiful and in spite of inflation, it is still relatively cheap. And yet, food is the cause of much misery, isn't it? Too much food is not really any better for us than too little food. And now we have all kinds of food-related illnesses that were unknown in prior generations. And how can this be? We have a plentiful, safe, sanitary food supply system. So how can it be? How can it this be, folks? And, and there's one very simple answer. And that is, God put a curse upon the ground. And if anybody thinks that they're going to find some way to get a food source that is going to bypass the curse, they are horribly mistaken. And we could just go on down the list. God has cursed the world, and no matter what man does to improve it, he can't outrun the curse. God is going to kill us and we're going to weep and we're going to groan and we're going to fight and we're going to hate. This is the way the world is going to be. The world is cursed. Relationships will be hostile. The planet will be hostile. God is hostile. There are no economic policies that will bring forgiveness. The world is cursed. It needs to be forgiven. Forgiveness is found only in God. And we begin with God, folks, because at the end of the day, all offenses are ultimately offenses against Him. If I sin against you, that is primarily a sin against the Lord. 
And so we always begin with God. It must always be the first one that we reference. And just as Adam's sin was an affront to him, so is our sin an affront to him. You know this. It is not difficult at all to find people who have a problem with God. That they look at this world and they don't understand why God doesn't just fix it. Why doesn't he just make all the poor people rich and all the unhappy people happy and all the sick people healthy? And the answer to that, folks, is because they fail to grasp, right? God is not just some neutral, cosmic mass out there. He is a living being. And our sin is offensive to him. And it is disgusting to him. And it angers him. And he's mad. He is not out of control mad. He is measured mad. He has cursed the world. In other words, folks, it's one thing for people to talk about what they have against God. What they need to do is remember that God has something against them. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4, Paul poses this question, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness? Do you think little of the riches of his goodness? And forbearance, how much he puts up with. And his long suffering, how long he puts up with it. Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. So here are the vast majority of people living in complete ignorance of the fact that God is putting up with their sinfulness for a length of time out of his mercy. But what is happening is they are just piling up God's anger against them that will be revealed when it is the day to reveal that anger. So when we return to the text, folks, we see that to Jesus, forgiveness is the priority. And what we have here in the Gospels, and I won't spend much time with this, but this is something that is pretty common in the the Gospels. The Gospels kind of give us the snapshot, the big picture. And then God's Spirit will later add all of the pertinent details in the epistles. In other words, it really isn't until we get into books like Romans and Ephesians that we get a grasp of, and Colossians, that we get a grasp of exactly how it is that Jesus is able to do what he does here. It's just stated and demonstrated 
in very simple picture form. And I say that because Jesus is not making this connection. Young man, you caused sin A, and so you get consequence A, you're paralyzed. That is not what Jesus is trying to argue. He's making an illustration that applies to the entire mass of humanity. Our suffering is entirely, completely, 100%, whether it is something like a food allergy or the illnesses that are devastating our, our young people in the academy right now, the flu and sinuses and our heartaches and our fears and our worries about whether we'll still have our job at the first of the year. These are all tied, folks, to sin. There's a sense in which we are all, this young man, we are impotent, we are unable, unable, we are feeble, we are weak, we are deficient. Why? Sin. What do I need? I don't just need, I just want to be happy. But you need more than... I want to be happy, but we need more than to be happy. Or I just want to be healthy, but we need more than to be just healthy. So just as this man is representative to us, right? He is an illustration of the damaging effects of sin. So in Jesus Christ, we have the hope of redemption through forgiveness. All of our healing, folks, and all of our forgiveness, or all of our restoration, is grounded ultimately in God's forgiveness. This is our hope, right? That the ferocious anger of God rather than being directed to us, has been directed to Christ who then shields us from God's ferocious anger. So Jesus says to this young man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Because forgiveness is the priority. This causes, of course, no small stir among the theologians. And at this point in time, folks, in verses 6 and 7, we are really getting to what is the crux of the story. The crux of the story is not, look, Man, i got to tell you, I was there that day. you never seen anything like it. It's all of a sudden, you could hear noises of a chainsaw, and then pieces started floating down, and a big old chunk of roof was pulled out of the way, and they dropped this guy down, and everything. that that's not the point of the story. The, 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 the leaders put their finger on the point of the story. Who can forgive sin? Who can forgive sin? And when you find this story in Matthew 9 or in Luke 5, it's the same thing. Who can forgive sin? And these people are irate 
because they know something. What do they, and by the way, their knowledge is not wrong. Who can forgive sin like that but God? And then it is at that point, folks, that Jesus points out to them that he has the authority to forgive sin. He doesn't, right? He doesn't get into that theological debate with them that only God can do it. He just points out that he has the authority to forgive sin. And that's what's going on in verses 8 and 11. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reason within themselves, he said unto them, why reason ye these things in your heart? Why are you, having, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Why are you having this conversation with yourself? This, this is not right that he would forgive that man's sins. Nobody can make that kind of statement besides the Lord. Verse 9, whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Authority. Now let's just think through this, folks, right? So, right? so let me make you do a little work this morning. I'm guessing you've done it at some point in time. Let me ask you this question, because Jesus asked the religious leaders this question, which is easier? So let me ask you, what's easier to do? Is it easier? If it's you, what's easier for you to do? Is it easier for you to say your sins are forgiven? How easy would that be? That wouldn't be hard at all, would it? Wouldn't be hard at all for us to say your sins are forgiven. But if I said to you, your sins are forgiven, there's nothing to refute that claim. There's nothing to prove that claim. That's easy. Folks, the, the, this is the point Jesus is making. That's easy to say that. Here's the hard thing to say. Get up and walk. Get up and walk. Because now we're all going to know. I say, your sins are forgiven. Who knows? Are they or are they not? Who knows? Well, he said they were. What's easier to do? Jesus is making an argument here about authority. I want you to know that I have the authority to do this. I have the right to make this claim. Son, your sins are forgiven. But then Jesus goes on, folks, to demonstrate that he has the ability to make that claim. Verse number 11, If I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house, or I say unto thee, and immediately, verse number 12, he arose, took up his bed, went forth before them all, insomuch they were all amazed and glorified God. See, there's the proof of the pudding. When Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven you, his sins were forgiven him. 
And when there was a question raised, Jesus is not a fool and he's not an idiot and neither is the father who has already given him the day's agenda of what's going to happen. All right, let me prove to you that I have this authority by demonstrating to you I have this ability. Take up your bed and walk. This is what really amazed the people, folks. This becomes in the minds then of most people. The issue is who has the authority to forgive sins? Only God. Jesus says, well, watch me do it. Watch me do it. I will forgive this man's sins. Take up your bed and walk. And up he, ta- up he goes. And everybody is mesmerized. As I've already mentioned to you folks, and you know this, before we have any conversations with each other about forgiving our individual trespasses and offenses against each other, before we have that talk, will you forgive me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Fundamental to that is understanding that we need to be forgiven by God and we can be forgiven by God. This is not an empty hope. This is not something that is held out to us as an impossibility. Make no mistake about this, folks. Apart from the blood of Christ applied to your sinfulness, your life is not acceptable to God. It is not fundamentally, basically good. It is just entirely and totally evil. I mean, that's the position of the scriptures. Nobody in our culture wants to hear that. I remember years and years and years ago, one of the guys and I, there was a family that had visited and we were trying to reach them with the gospel and we'd gone to their house. They had a little girl. She's got to be in her 30s by now. Had a little baby and I just made the point that she was a sinner and boy, was her mother mad about that. No, she's not. Yes, she is. Yes, she is. The law of Moses brings us into very sharp focus that if I do not love you as I love me, that's a sin against God. However, all that plays out and you have an entire section of the Old Testament devoted to rounding out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do it, it's a sin against the Lord. And in Jesus Christ is both the authority and the ability to forgive our sins. He has the authority because he is God. You know that. And he has the ability, folks, because here's where the sins go when they get sent away. They get sent to him. Hebrews 9.15, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, how did he become the mediator of the New Testament? He died. 
for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. Why didn't God kill Moses for murdering the Egyptian? Why didn't God kill David for murdering Uriah? Bible answer, because God killed Jesus Christ instead. Hebrews 9.27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So again, folks, nothing that we do not know, but something we need oft to be reminded of. That foundational to any thought or discussion about being forgiven or extending forgiveness is that our primary offense is to God who has the authority and the ability to forgive us. He forgives us by killing his son. But the forgiveness is real and the effects of that forgiveness are real. Let's pray this morning.